This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Corrie Samuel. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter six, part fourteen. The chief commissioner was the chancellor. His presence and assent were necessary to every proceeding. All men knew how unjustly, insolently, and barbarously he had acted in courts where he had been, to a certain extent, restrained by the known laws of England. It was, therefore, not difficult to foresee how he would conduct himself in a situation where he was at entire liberty to make forms of procedure and rules of evidence for himself. Of the other six commissioners, three were prelates and three laymen. The name of Archbishop Sancroft stood first, but he was fully convinced that the court was illegal, that all its judgments would be null, and that by sitting in it he should incur a serious responsibility. He therefore determined not to comply with the royal mandate. He did not, however, act on this occasion with that courage and sincerity which he showed when driven to extremity two years later. He begged to be excused on the plea of business and ill health. The other members of the board, he added, were men of too much ability to need his assistance. These disingenuous apologies ill became the primate of all England at such a crisis, nor did they avert the royal displeasure. Sancroft's name was not indeed struck out of the list of privy councillors, but, to the bitter mortification of the friends of the church, he was no longer summoned on council days. If, said the king, he is too sick or too busy to go to the commission, it is a kindness to relieve him from attendance at council. The government found no similar difficulty with Nathaniel Crewe, bishop of the great and opulent see of Durham, a man nobly born, and raised so high in his profession that he could scarcely wish to rise higher, but mean, vain, and cowardly. He had been made dean of the chapel royal when the bishop of London was banished from the palace. The honour of being an ecclesiastical commissioner turned Crewe's head. It was to no purpose that some of his friends represented to him the risk which he ran by sitting in an illegal tribunal. He was not ashamed to answer that he could not live out of the royal smile, and exultingly expressed his hope that his name would appear in history, a hope which has not altogether been disappointed. Thomas Spratt, Bishop of Rochester, was the third clerical commissioner. He was a man to whose talents posterity has scarcely done justice. Unhappily for his fame, it has been usual to print his verses in collections of the British poets, and those who judge of him by his verses must consider him as a servile imitator, who, without one spark of Cowley's admirable genius, mimicked whatever was least commendable in Cowley's manner. But those who are acquainted with Spratt's prose writings will form a very different estimate of his powers. He was indeed a great master of our language, and possessed at once the eloquence of the orator, of the controversialist, and of the historian. His moral character might have passed with little censure, had he belonged to a less sacred profession, for the worst that can be said of him is that he was indolent, 
luxurious and worldly. But such failings, though not commonly regarded as very heinous, in men of secular callings, are scandalous in a prelate. The archbishopric of York was vacant. Spratt hoped to obtain it, and therefore accepted a seat at the ecclesiastical board. But he was too good-natured a man to behave harshly, and he was too sensible a man not to know that he might, at some future time, be called to a serious account by a Parliament. He therefore, though he consented to act, tried to do as little mischief, and to make as few enemies, as possible. The three remaining commissioners were the Lord Treasurer, the Lord President, and the Chief Justice of the King's Bench. Rochester, disapproving and murmuring, consented to serve. Much as he had to endure at the court, he could not bear to quit it. Much as he loved the church, he could not bring himself to sacrifice for her sake his white staff, his patronage, his salary of eight thousand pounds a year, and the far larger indirect emoluments of his office. He excused his conduct to others, and perhaps to himself, by pleading that, as a commissioner, he might be able to prevent much evil, and that, if he refused to act, some person less attached to the Protestant religion would be found to replace him. Sunderland was the representative of the Jesuitical cabal. Herbert's recent decision on the question of the dispensing power seemed to prove that he would not flinch from any service which the king might require. As soon as the commission had been opened, the Bishop of London was cited before the new tribunal. He appeared. "'I demand of you,' said Jeffreys, "'a direct and positive answer. Why did not you suspend Dr. Sharp?' The bishop requested a copy of the commission, in order that he might know by what authority he was thus interrogated. "'If you mean,' said Jeffreys, "'to dispute our authority, I shall take another course with you. As to the commission, I do not doubt that you have seen it. At all events you may see it in any coffee-house for a penny.' The insolence of the Chancellor's reply appears to have shocked the other commissioners, and he was forced to make some awkward apologies. He then returned to the point from which he had started. "'This,' he said, "'is not a court in which written charges are exhibited. Our proceedings are summary, and by word of mouth. The question is a plain one. Why did you not obey the King?' With some difficulty, Compton obtained a brief delay, and the assistance of counsel. When the case had been heard, it was evident to all men that the bishop had done only what he was bound to do. The treasurer, the chief justice, and Spratt were for acquittal. The king's wrath was moved. It seemed that his ecclesiastical commission would fail him, as his Tory parliament had failed him. He offered Rochester a simple choice, to pronounce the bishop guilty, or to quit the treasury. Rochester was base enough to yield. Compton was suspended from all spiritual functions, and the charge of his great diocese was committed to his judges, Spratt and Crewe. He continued, however, to reside in his palace, and to receive his revenues, for it was known that, had any attempt been made to deprive him of his temporalities, he would have put himself under the protection of the common law, and Herbert himself declared that, at common law, judgment must be given against the crown. This consideration induced the king to pause. Only a few weeks had elapsed 
since he had packed the courts of Westminster Hall, in order to obtain a decision in favour of his dispensing power. He now found that, unless he packed them again, he should not be able to obtain a decision in favour of the proceedings of his ecclesiastical commission. He determined, therefore, to postpone for a short time the confiscation of the freehold property of refractory clergymen. End of part 14